The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, and 14 through 17. 1 through 5 first. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. 14 through 17. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And Joab was besieging the city, and he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that, Linda. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today on this uh, third Sunday of Advent. And uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Scott, and it's my privilege, as it always is, to uh, do my very best to explain the scripture that has been uh, read to us. And we're in a series right now that we're calling The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. And we're looking specifically at the women who are in the genealogy of Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 1. And uh, this particular woman, her name is Bathsheba, and uh, just like the others, she does not disappoint uh, in the way that this whole series um, amplifies the unconventional ways of God. So last week, uh, I mentioned that in those days, when people wanted to put forth a resume to credential themselves, they, they didn't so much focus on the things that they've accomplished as much as they did on the people that they were from. And they would edit out the embarrassing names from their history, from their lineage, and they would amplify the names of the people in their lineage that they were proud to be associated with. And so this being true of those times, it's almost as if, if we look at the genealogy 
of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, it's almost as if God is going out of his way to discredit himself and to discredit Jesus Christ and to encourage unbelief because all of these uh, scandalous, sinful, uh, down-and-outer types of people are the ones who are emphasized in Jesus's genealogy or resume. And so, so to get to Mary and Joseph, here's what has to happen. We have to first pass through Tamar. That was a couple of weeks ago. Tamar, remember, was the ancestor of Jesus who faked being a prostitute uh, so that her father-in-law would solicit her services. She seduced him uh, so that she could become pregnant by her father-in-law. So that's one person you've got to go through to get to Mary and Joseph. And then there's Rahab, who we looked at last week, who's an actual prostitute who also became the great-grandmother to King David, who we'll talk about here in a moment. And now we have Bathsheba. And we read this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6 about her. David was the father of Solomon through the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon through the wife of Uriah. You can't make this stuff up. This is our third piece of evidence so far that validates C.S. Lewis's theory that Christianity has to be true because no mere human being would ever make the story up and tell it this way. Any thinking person is going to look at episodes like the one we're about to examine and ask the question, why would God, who is in control of all things, who orchestrates history, who plans all of our days before a single one of them comes to be, why would God not choose to work through better people? And I think the answer to that lies in a title uh, from one of Flannery O'Connor's most famous works. A good man is hard to find. And a good woman is also hard to find. Even though a case could be made that Women in general are more laudable, at least in the Bible, than many of the men. As the comedian Jim Carrey once said, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. I wonder if Bathsheba would later become that woman. Let's talk about the seeds of evil today. The seeds of evil that reside in every human heart and why we have to stay awakened to that evil, especially as it resides in us, and the fact that we have to go to war every single day against that very evil in ourselves. So, so first, the seeds of evil, they reside in every human heart. So notice again, David is in the center of this story who gave birth to Solomon through the wife of Uriah. David is the author of 73 of the 150 Psalms. These are prayers that God inspired and gave to us to use as our prayers. David is the author of 73 of them, almost half of them. 
God's appraisal in two uh, parts of Scripture. God's appraisal of David is that David is a man after my own heart. And and yet we see this, this man David committing sins that are more atrocious than they even appear. In the heart of this very same man who wrote all of these psalms are the seeds of a sociopathic narcissist. And those seeds get fertilized and nurtured and activated in this experience of his. David shows himself to be capable of using and abusing the girl next door. This is not a consensual situation. If you heard the scripture, if you listened carefully, you you, you probably noticed this, that David saw Bathsheba, David sent for Bathsheba, and David took her. This is forceful language. Back then, they didn't have separation of powers. In the office of the king, you had the executive, the legislative, and the judicial powers all in one person. To cross him was to put your own life at risk. And so so David sees, David sends, and David takes. And to cross him is to put your own life at risk. To resist him is to do the same. So he's capable of using and abusing. He's capable... After that, of scandalous cover-up, which is what he tries to do. Bathsheba sends message to him that she's pregnant. The baby is his, and, and, and there's no covering it up because her husband, Uriah the Hittite, has been off to war. And so what David does is he arranges for Uriah to come home from war for a couple of days. He encourages him to go in to his wife And Uriah, being a man of integrity, says, I can't do that while my brothers are all out still fighting in battle, O king. And so he sleeps outside of his own house. He doesn't even go in. He doesn't even say hello to his wife because of integrity. And so David says, okay, well, maybe if I get him drunk. And so so he forces Uriah to drink a lot of alcohol, and he gets rip-roaring drunk, and he still will not do what the king encourages him to do, go into his wife in order to cover up the fact that the baby is David is David's. It turns out, as one commentary has said, that Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. What an indictment to this so-called man after God's own heart. And then after this, it says that David sent, we see David sending, sending, sending. He now sends for the general of the army, and he says specifically to the general, I want you to put Uriah the Hittite on the front lines of battle so that he is killed. There are deeper layers to this, by the way. So if you're familiar with with Old Testament history, you'll know that there was this group of men that were the most loyal group of men to King David. So loyal that they would cross enemy lines in battle just to get David a glass of water because David was thirsty. They would risk their own lives just to get David a drink. And among those 30 mighty loyal men were Uriah the Hittite and one other significant person to this narrative, a man named Eliam. 
who was Bathsheba's father. And so not only is he treating her this way, he's also betraying her husband and her father, two of his most loyal friends and soldiers, to get what he wants. So ever since the Enlightenment, you know, talk about human depravity has, has gone a bit out of style. We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about corruption and depravity and things like guilt and shame. And it's understandable why we don't like to talk about these things. We don't want to contend with them. We don't want to deal with them. They make us feel uncomfortable. You know, there's a popular Nashville artist who has a hit song, and the title of that song is Most People Are Good. Now, now there is some truth in that statement. Because every person, while being fallen and while being you know, carriers of these seeds of evil in different ways, every single human being is also made in the image of God. And so there are seeds of good in every person. This includes Christians and people who are not Christians because of the image of God. You know, this is why most people, including people who don't necessarily walk with God, are still drawn to God-like qualities, like love. Love is the central theme of the most celebrated songs and the most celebrated stories of history and of our time. That's an attribute of God. Or kindness. There's a reason why Mr. Rogers is famous again. And Ted Lasso is one of the most popular TV shows. We're, we're drawn to that goodness in God that communicates kindness. We're drawn to forgiveness. This is why Les Miserables is such a, a wonderfully celebrated you know, play and, and film. You know, that unforgettable scene, especially where the priest forgives Jean Valjean for stealing the silverware and then gives him the candlesticks on top of that. This is also why both religious and irreligious people make change resolutions every January. There's something in us that wants to be good. There's something in us that wants to do better and be better, as they say. This is the reason why more people are drawn toward care professions like healthcare, counseling, ministry, social work, as opposed to people being drawn toward other uh, more sinister professions like human trafficking or robbing banks. But all this goodness that resides in human beings made in the image of God, all this goodness that even resides in people who carry the Holy Spirit around with them, it is not enough to negate the shadow side of every human heart. You know, the Bible talks about this battle that's going on inside every human heart. The flesh is always at war with the Spirit and the Spirit at war with the flesh. The old man is always at war with the new man and the new man is always at war with the old man. Solzhenitsyn put it this way, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. 
But the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. Even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. Remarkably, Paul the Apostle saw this reality in himself. This is at the end of his life. He's at the peak of his virtue. And he remembers, as, as Michael Card you know, sings, who will be here uh, this coming Saturday uh, for the concert, in one of his songs uh, called Joy in the Journey, one of the lines is, remember the hopelessness when you were lost. Paul never forgets the hopelessness that defined him when he did not know Christ. He said, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. I thought I was doing the work of God, but I was opposing him and didn't even know it, didn't even realize it. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man, but in the same sentence he says, and, and remember, this is, this is him at, at the peak of his virtue, I am the chief of sinners. Present tense. He never gets past it. You know, David and Paul are not unique in being duplicitous men. You know, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, these things that are true about me, they're true about all people. He says, all people have turned aside from God. All people have become corrupt and no one does good, not even one. So here's a fun fact. When Paul writes these words in Romans 3, he's quoting the 14th Psalm. And who is the author of the 14th Psalm? David. There are seeds of evil that reside in every human heart, especially our own. And because of this, secondly, we have to stay awakened to this evil. Solzhenitsyn continues about the line separating good and evil in every human heart. He says, yet I have not given up all hope that human beings and nations may be able, able in spite of all, to learn from the experience of other people without having to go through it personally. In other words, stories like David, stories like Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul, these can become cautionary accounts that help us not repeat history in our own lives. But what we have to recognize when we look at Paul, when we look at David, when we look at our own susceptibilities, we have to recognize that every big sin, it starts with a series of smaller compromises. You know, the big sin doesn't just happen. It, 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 it most often happens as a result of a continued buildup of miniature compromises. Like a, like a single weed seed can, can become a weed and then that can spawn more seeds. And, and before you know it, what started as a single tiny little microscopic weed seed, it potentially ruins an entire garden. Unless you you know, put that pre-emergent, you know, keep applying that pre-emergent, the, the, the seeds are going to emerge and the weeds are going to emerge. What were those seeds for David? Well, one was, it appears, boredom. He allowed himself to become deactivated enough from the work of God and from the mission to which God had called him that he became bored. 
Notice here in the account, he's at home in the middle of the afternoon, sleeping on the couch while other men, especially kings, are out to war. Something happens. You know, this man who is the leader, who has a history of of being a faithful warrior. Remember the David and Goliath account. Suddenly, he's bored at home. And his boredom leads to some sort of entitlement that, 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 that one commentary suggests is born from a leader's self-pity or, or what the commentary calls a magisterial self-pity. This is a kind of self-pity that, that's, that's unique, the commentary says, to people who lead. And I quote, people in leadership, people in power are especially vulnerable to self-pity. They sacrifice a lot, they work long hours, they endure disproportionate amounts of opposition and criticism, especially if they're public figures, and very often the criticism is overblown and politically motivated. The seed inside can turn to self-pity, and then to self-righteousness, and then to a force field of denial, and then to self-justification, and then this internal monologue starts happening with the isolated leader. Nobody gets me. Nobody appreciates what I go through. I deserve this. Before you know it, the king is putting himself above the law. And whenever a king puts himself above the law, he injures his neighbor. And what does God do but send signs of grace David's way? Two smelling salts. The first is the smelling salt of confrontation through Nathan the prophet. But, but Nathan comes in a very subtle way. He doesn't just confront David directly and drop a hammer of shame and scolding on him. Instead, he tells him a story. What do you think about this story? Imagine a poor man who's got one lamb, tends it, cares for it, nurtures it, and then this rich, powerful man with all these lambs takes that poor man's lamb. What do you think about that story, king? He draws David in with a story. He leads David to a point where David convicts himself. Because what does David say? He says, ah, That man, that rich man who took that lamb from the poor man deserves to die. And that's Nathan's moment. O king, you are the man. You are that man. Now here's a sign that the grace of God had never exited David's heart. Here's a sign that David always remained a son, just like the the son in Luke 15 who who lived off in the far country for a while after he lost his way. David repents instantly. Instantly. Signs of the other seed, signs of the spirit, signs of the new man coming out immediately, instantly, when he's found out. Now, if David was a maniac or if he was a moralist, what David would have done is that he would have gaslit Nathan. Oh, this is, you're the problem. You're the, who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? Where do you get off? That, that's what a maniac or a moralist 
would have done to Nathan's confrontation. You know, maniacs and moralists do not respond with humility. You don't ever hear them apologize. You don't ever hear them owning something. Even if they're caught red-handed, you never hear them owning it. I'll never forget, there's this famous bad call at first base. The umpire missed the call by, by about three feet, and it, it cost one team the pennant. And they showed that he was, he was doing a talk show uh, interview, and, and they, they showed the footage, and they showed how badly he missed the call. And the talk show host said, well, what do you have to say now about the call that you made? And he said, I got it right. A maniac or a moralist cannot abide prophetic friendship. Can't abide it. But David shows himself to be different. David shows himself to be familiar with the 27th Psalm, verse 6, where it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Guess who the author of that psalm is? It's not David. It's David's son, Solomon. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Where might Solomon have learned that truth? But from his own father, who wrote in the 141st Psalm, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Nathan was this righteous man. We've got to stay awake into this evil and not push it down and regard the Nathans in our lives as a gracious smelling salt from the great physician. And finally, we must go to war against this evil. John Owen, the great Puritan, said we must always be killing sin or sin will be killing us. You know, that's an invitation to stay awake. Remember, at the very end of his life, I mean, Paul, Paul is at the peak of his virtue. Paul is at the peak of his Christ-likeness. And it's at that point that he identifies himself as the chief among all sinners. It's as if he'd listened carefully to Jesus' teaching where Jesus said, my followers, my people, my daughters, my sons, my dear children, be on guard against all kinds of greed. But greed is, is just an example it's, it's, just a, it's just a sampling of, of all the many, 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 many things that Jesus wants us to be on guard about. Whatever kind of sin, whatever makes you most susceptible to deny your creator, what, whatever makes you most susceptible, like David, to injure your neighbor in order to get what you want, to be on guard to stay awake. So, um, if you've been around a while, you know, you've probably heard us talk every now and then about the Enneagram. The Enneagram isn't the Bible. It's not, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Enneagram, but it's a very helpful personality tool. And I'm an Enneagram 4, like my friend Nathan Tasker over here. And an Enneagram 4, where the Enneagram 4 is really good, is it showing up when people are in a ditch, 
We're really good at that. We're really good at empathy in hard places. We're especially skilled at that. We're especially skilled at being realists. We will not allow the ugly stuff of life, the, the ugly stuff of, of, of the fallenness of the human condition of, and of the world and universe in which we live to just be swept under the rug and, and be this sort of happy, clappy thing. Like we're drawn, we're, we're actually attracted to the Psalms of lament and, and people who are willing to express their sorrow and their hurt and, and their broken feelings. We're drawn to that. That's where we're that's where, where we're able to make a contribution to help other people not fake fine, to invite other people to enter into the reality that we're not home yet, to weep with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, as it were. But our shadow side is that we can shift from groaning, which is a godly thing, Romans chapter 8, all creation groans, the Holy Spirit groans, people who are awake groan because things are not the way that it's meant to be. But we can, us Enneagram 4s, we can, we can move away from groaning and actually just be complainers, gripers, cynics, Negative Nellies. The glass isn't even half empty. It's just empty for us in our, in our worst moments. And so in order to stay on guard against the shadow side of how I am made, I have to start every single day with the Psalms. I spend the first half hour of every day with the Psalms to nurture gratitude, to nurture thanksgiving, to nurture the bigness of God in my heart. And then I, then I proceed from the Psalms to whatever part of Scripture I'm in for my devotionals and then to prayer and more gratitude. And that's, that's partly a discipline. It's partly a self-corrective endeavor before I fall into temptation of cynicism for the rest of the day. Now, the path's going to be different for you depending on your, your struggle, but to stay awake just as Paul did. And then to be sure to recruit Nathans into your life. Every Christian needs at least one, but ideally several physicians who tend to your soul, right? We go to the doctor, those of us who who do our annual checkups, we go to the doctor, why? Because if there is bad news that we're not aware of inside here, we want to know about it. And the reason why we want to know about it is so that we can attack it before it starts attacking us, so that we can kill whatever's inside of us that's injurious to human biology, so we can kill it, if possible, before it hurts us or injures us or, or, if it's a more serious thing, kills us. I mean, all the COVID testing around the world, it's because of this impulse. We want to know if there's something wrong in us Biologically, why wouldn't we want to know if there's something wrong in us spiritually, morally, ethically? Why wouldn't we want to know? Why do our defenses go up in that part of our lives in ways that our defenses don't go up medically? 
or professionally, right? We want to know how we can do a better job. And Nathan plays the part of this wonderful physician. He confronts David because he cares too much for David to let David just stay sick when he knows it's within his power to do something about it. Nathan also, though, comes in and comforts David when when David is stricken with his own guilt, when, when David condemns himself and says, you're right, I am the man. I am the chief of sinners. The first words out of of Nathan's mouth immediately on the spot within seconds of the confrontation is, the Lord has taken away your sin. Let me tell you who the Lord is. Let me tell you what the Lord is like. He loves you enough to cut you. Not with a sword, but with a scalpel. To do surgery on you. To make you bleed. to, 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 To inflict an injury to prevent a greater injury from destroying you. He loves you that much, and he also loves you enough to mend you back, to make you whole, to make you the greatest version of yourself. But one thing that Nathan does not do is, is he does not caricature David. He not, does not reduce David to, to, to David's least flattering season or moment. He sees the whole person. The Lord has taken away your sin. So here's the second, uh, the second smelling salt is Bathsheba herself. God sends Nathan to confront and he sends Bathsheba back to David to teach him again about grace. Remember, David had destroyed this woman's life. He had assaulted her. He had made her a widow. And he had put her in a position where she lost a child. You know, the child conceived by David and Bathsheba died. You know, there's this song that Taylor Swift wrote that uh, Little Big Town made famous. And the line goes, wish you were a better man. And, And this woman in this song concludes she can't continue with this man because he's not a better man. I wish you were a better man. And this is the song that Bathsheba could have had on repeat about David for the rest of her life. But, but David did get better again. And we, we see this on display in the 51st Psalm, which is David's confession about this entire incident that he published for the whole world to benefit from. When you feel guilty, when you feel ashamed, when you feel uh, that you're, you're so done and disqualified... Pray this psalm to the Lord. Enter into my Bathsheba, Uriah, the Hittite experience. But here's what God does with Bathsheba. He he restores David through the grace of this woman. The story continues and she marries the guy. She marries him. I mean, imagine the kind of deep work of forgiveness that had to happen in this woman's heart, in this dear woman's heart, in this ruined woman's heart. Imagine the kind of grace and forgiveness that had to happen, no doubt over time through a process, in her heart to not only become David's wife, but to have another child with him child named Solomon, whom David and Bathsheba named 
peace. That's what Solomon means. The prince of peace. And this all points to duplicitous David's greater son. You know, this, this season of year, Advent, such a wonderful year, uh, season of the year. One of the things that, that makes it so wonderful is, is paradoxes like this and disruptive stories like this to remind us of the nature and character of God and of grace. But Isaiah says that, that you know, looking, looking forward to the Messiah, says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Solomon, Prince of Shalom. And the government will be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. David is, or, or Jesus is, is all of these people, but in perfection. He's not only the true and perfect David, he's also the true and perfect Bathsheba. He's the beauty nearby who marries himself to us after we wreck his life because of grace. He's the true Uriah. He's the mighty man on the front lines who doesn't just cross enemy lines at the risk of his life to get us some water, but goes right into enemy territory and gives his life to give us wine and bread, my body and my blood. And he's the true and perfect David, the king who uses his power not to destroy but to restore. Jesus also saw beauty in us. Jesus also sent for us. Jesus also took us, but without a shred of self-interest, without a shred of self-gratification, but only to love us and only to bring us home that we may always have a seat at the king's table. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our Lord, may we forget not all your benefits. You heal all our diseases. You redeem our lives from the pit. You crown us with love and compassion, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but simply because you are kind. You are your attributes. You are love. You are kindness. You are forgiveness. You are grace. Father, this line separating good and evil awaken us to the reality that it passes through our hearts. Awaken us also, Lord, to the reality that you have come in order to resolve that on our account. You are our true Nathan. You tell us the truth. Not to stab us with a dagger, but to do surgery as with a scalpel. To get what's killing us out of us. And you comfort us, Lord. You not only confront us, but you also comfort us. You tell us directly that you do not hold our sins against us, that though our sins be as scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. And we thank you that this table, the Lord's table, points to these realities. And so I pray that as we approach the table, Lord, 
which represents your betrayal and represents our welcome into your arms. Lord, as we approach this table, may we remember that we have a faithful husband who wooed us back after we destroyed him, that we may live forever with him. Thank you for this foretaste that the bread and the cup have become for us, that we might remember these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.